0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Many people believe, of course, that the best way to make sense of our early 21st century pandemic dilemma is to look into history and find uh, historical comparisons and metaphors and allusions to help us through this crisis. Uh, Last month, we had Amity Schles, the American historian, on talking about Calvin Coolidge and what we can learn and unlearn from him. So far, at least, we haven't had a show about Herbert Hoover, the 31st president of the United States between 1929 and 1933, a man who is, for better or worse, perennially associated with failure. Um, The great question, of course, is, Is the ghost of Herbert Hoover alive in the person of Donald J. Trump? Uh, One man believes that that's a possibility. Jamel Bowie is a a New York Times opinion columnist and the author of a recent piece in the Times entitled Trump is Following in Herbert Hoover's Footsteps. Uh, Jamel, is the ghost of Herbert Hoover alive in the person of Donald J. Trump?
1: I think so, and not simply in President Trump, but also in um, the party he leads. Uh, In the column, I start from the, I I actually don't really speak about Trump that much. I start from the uh, position that what made Hoover's handling of the depression so disastrous, um, which wasn't inevitable. Hoover had been known for being a very competent administrator both as the leader of uh, famine relief efforts after the First World War and uh, as the leader of flood, relo- flood relief efforts in the United States in the late 20s. So it's not as if Hoover was incompetent. And to the extent, there's, there's, to the extent that there's no continuity whatsoever between Hoover and Trump, it's entirely because Hoover was a very capable man uh, in a way that I don't think President Trump is. But the, um, the way in which not – Hoover and Trump and his party are similar is in the lack of flexibility and the um, rigidity and the ide- ideological blinkers they have on when it comes to the crisis, that Hoover, when faced with something unprecedented, fell back on time-worn views uh, and solutions, uh, Refuse. To um, authorize relief for the unemployed, uh, for people who needed work, um, insisted that what the country faced was a crisis of confidence, that it just needed basically a cheerleader um, when he wasn't denying a problem altogether, and essentially uh, refusing to alter his behavior or um, change course despite the fact that what he was doing wasn't working. Um, and I see that in the contemporary Republican Party, in its, you know, after taking initial initial efforts to stop the economic devastation of the pandemic, of the pandemic, in sort of refusing to act any further, to falling back on old nostrums about deficit reduction and debt, um, in not being willing to jettison these um, sort of ideological hobby horses, uh, and really utilize the full authority and um, ability of the government to handle this problem and specifically to assist people who through no fault of their own um, are now jobless or um and in, in running over running out of
0: uh money the infamy of of herbert hoover or one of the, infamy, the infamies was that of course he he was president during the wall street crash uh, the, the 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 catastrophic fall in the in the price of the stock market uh, isn't one difference between the 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 epoch of Herbert Hoover and of Donald J Trump is the stock market today, as we speak, is actually holding up pretty well. Right, that, that's sort of it's. Um,
1: I mean, I find that a little strange, just because uh, you know we're we're approaching, we're in double digit unemployment right now. You know, something like twenty million, twenty five million Americans are out of work. Um uh that's not, I mean that's slowing down, but it's still you know hundreds of thousands of Americans are losing work every week. So I don't really know, um, what is going on there. That was my dog. Um, <laughs> but I would say that as far as you know the stock market and and the stock crash of 29 goes, One thing that, so first, the, the market recovered somewhat after that initial crash and then it crashed again. But I think the similarities there are in equating the health of the stock market with the health of the larger economy. Um, Hoover was very concerned with how business was doing, uh, but again, not so concerned with how ordinary Americans are faring. And President Trump and his party, likewise, seem to have f- satisfied themselves with a the response that. Uh, maintained the share prices of uh, of shareholders of maintaining um, the sort of strength of the stock market, but not so interested in dealing with the um, economic pain being dealt to ordinary people. And you know the argument I think they would make is that this is why we're urging um, states to open up to end the lockdowns. But the problem is that the you know in March when the slowdown began, it didn't begin because states ordered lockdowns. Uh, Americans are already staying home beforehand, and in states that have opened up, like Georgia, for example, um, you know, restaurant bookings are still down—you know, eighty percent from where they were. People really aren't going out because the fundamental economic problem is the public health problem, um, and an unwillingness to do what's necessary to solve that is going to keep the economy um,
0: uh, depressed some people might respond that things are different today than they were under Hoover um, the Federal Reserve or, or different as well to even into to, to 2008 the Federal Reserve has found three trillion dollars and and, and and people expect it and and and, and, and uh, the, the head of the Reserve Bank has suggested there's more money available um, Congress passed the Carers Act which gave some money to the unemployed I, in your view is that Small change is it profoundly inadequate?
1: I don't know. So it's 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 not nothing, right? And I think it's it's a fair point to say that um, American monetary policy in, in this current economic crisis is much it's far ahead of where it was in the crash. But also, it's not adequate. Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, said in a CBS interview recently that although the Fed can um, make trillions of dollars available for credit markets, it the economy ultimately needs fiscal stimulus from um, the federal government, that the federal government does have to act um, to cushion the economic blow for uh, ordinary people. And to sort of repeat a point, the, this, the nature of this slowdown um, is that in response to a contagious and deadly disease, um, tens of millions of Americans stayed home. They did this before they were asked. They've c- continued to do this uh, uh, even as you know states and economies have begun to open up a little bit even as authorities have not been as, <clears throat> excuse me as stringent. and the 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 result of taking these responsible prudent steps to protect themselves and their communities is a sharp reduction in economic activity. And as long as we're still searching for a way to contain and control the virus, people are going to stay home and if people are going to stay home, <clears throat> excuse me. If people are going to stay home, then I think the government is obligated to assist them. Um, it, it's not for nothing, right? That in that in our our, our neighbors to the north in Canada, uh, the Canadian government essentially has been giving an unconditional grant to citizens um, to survive. And I think that's precisely what's needed here for uh, the federal government to use its borrowing power. Which right now um, interest rates. Are you know trending negative? Uh, other you know investors are practically paying the United States to to hold uh, hold hold debt. Um, we there is a, our fiscal capacity right now is uh, I wouldn't say unlimited, but something close to it. We can spend the money um, uh, and then not suffer any adverse consequences. And more importantly, spending the money helps keep the the real economy intact, right? It helps keeps uh, businesses open. It helps people pay their their mortgages and their rent and their grocery bills. It ensures that economic production continues, so that when we bounce, when when things get better, when we bounce back, that capacity hasn't been lost, and we can grow our way out of the um, of the debt we spent. That's basically what happened after the Second World War. We never paid back the debt from the New Deal and the Second World War. We just grew ourselves out of it. Um, But if we don't spend the money, if we for, you know, because the numbers are so big, because we want to, you know, for for fiscal rectitude, we don't um, invest like we should, then we're just going to have a sluggish, slow economy that will be far more destructive than um, some large numbers on the balance sheet.
0: You bring up the ghost of of Herbert Hoover in terms of comparing his administration's policy to that of the Trump administration. What about FDR and Joe Biden? Um, Could Joe Biden be the FDR of this crisis? Could he be the figure who comes in to revitalize the economy, to re-architect the very nature, perhaps, of early 21st century American society and capitalism? That's hard to say. I think because you know, Biden's career—he's been
1: in—he um, was in the Senate for you know 30 years, and vice president under Barack Obama. But he's never been um, a visionary, a radical. He's never been someone um, pushing for profound change. Hoover—not uh, Hoover, but Biden's uh, modus operandi as an elected official has been to move with the Democratic Party, to um, go where it goes, to um, stay in its center, wherever that center might be. And so my my instinct is to say, maybe not. Um, But then Biden has been making noises about wanting to pursue an FDR-sized presidency. And if you're willing to, if you're going to be um, uh, charitable about this, if you're going to give him the benefit of the doubt, then... One way you could think of Biden is, and this would be similar to FDR, right? FDR, not a radical, um, uh, not someone out to fundamentally change uh, the American system, uh, but someone who was out to preserve American democracy in the face of a crisis. And there are times when preservation requires radical action, that the way to keep things generally the same is to make... Big changes to the structure of the society, to the nature of the society, and that might be what where Biden finds himself. That, um, uh, to, in order to swing back, you have to take um, big swings in, 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 as far as countervailing force and influence goes. And if Biden goes down that
0: path, that would, I think, that would be um, FDR esque. How are we going to get a preview, a sneak preview of, of Biden? You've written about um, the biggest choice perhaps confronting him in the next couple of months or three months is deciding who his vice president is going to be. He's committed to being a woman. But apart from that, Warren's in the running and a number of other uh, figures from around America. Uh, will, do you think the choice of his VP give us an indication of how radical his administration will be? I think so. I think if he chooses, so
1: if he chooses a vice president that's aimed mainly at sort of you know managing um, demographic concerns, uh, you know, demographic coalitions, it's not it's not geared so much towards governing. Then I think, I mean, I think you can make a fair case that Biden is um, thinking much more about is not thinking in terms of what it would take, the kind of people he would need around him to. Um, uh, do an FDR, you know, style administration. But in in, in in that column, the case I specifically made was that um, the kind of if he is seriously thinking about a presidency that is uh, making the heavy lifts, that is trying to pass uh, bold, um, far-reaching policy for whatever the reasons might be. But if that's the if that's what he has in mind, then he needs a vice president that will actually help him do that—a governing partner. Um, who uh, is, is attuned to not just the complexities of the federal government, but knows how to utilize them for the sake of, um, of accomplishing things. And I, I argue that Elizabeth Warren was probably that person. And I think that if he were to pick Warren or someone similar to her, although there aren't that many people in the Democratic Party, similar to Elizabeth Warren, um, that would be a signal, right, that he is intending to, to really go for it. With this presidency, I'd say there are other things. I mean, if if Biden um, were to publicly commit to um, ending the legislative filibuster, right, which would which, as it stands, is kind of the principal stumbling block to Democrats, um, even if they win the Senate, they still have to deal with um, the filibuster, which puts a sixty vote threshold on doing anything substantive. Uh, if Biden were to commit to wanting to end that, that would send a powerful signal, right? There are things he can do um, short of by the, choosing a vice president that would
0: signal what his intentions are regarding his presidency. Jamil, you've written a, a lot of columns about uh, Donald J. Trump. Um, how original a figure is he? A- as you suggested at the beginning of this conversation, he's quite different from Herbert Hoover, Hoover in terms of his uh, unprofessional a- attitude towards go- government. Um, Are there uh, comparisons we can make in the American past about Trump, or is he a reality television, Twitter president, the first type of our social media age? It's interesting. I think the thing,
1: the distinctive thing about
0: Donald Trump, but this might
1: sound a little, um, uh, that's what I'm looking for, it might sound a little circular, uh, but the distinctive thing about Donald Trump is that he's president. Um, there have been Trump-like figures in the past, and um, by Trump-like I don't just mean uh, you know, flamboyant or, or um, you know, pugilistic or uh, any of those words you want to use, but I mean specifically figures whose popular bases seem to be in the backlash to racial progress. Um, George Wallace is a Trump-like figure, um, the, the Senator Ben Tillman of South Carolina from the early 20th century is a Trump-like figure. Um, you can kind of go down the list. And, you know, what, what's distinctive about Trump versus them is that they never became president. They never, um, they, they never attained that level of power, but Trump has. And by virtue of being president, he does exert a pull in the entire culture um, that makes him unique. And that makes it difficult beyond kind of the normal. It's impossible to know what comes in the future point, but it makes it difficult to really figure out what his impact will be in the long run. Um, uh, Especially since someone like George Wallace, for example, ends up being hugely influential in American politics despite not being president. So a George Wallace figure, like a George like a George Wallace like figure who becomes president, stands to reason might end up you know being influential in ways we simply cannot. Imagine, And that's aside from the fact that um, Trump's rise is facilitated by kind of decline in trust in democracy amongst a critical portion of the public, which is for a variety of reasons. And I think among them, um, the country's diversifying population electorate have come to believe that, you know, the country's institutions do not serve them. Um, and he seems to be eager to prove the point. So he's I think he's to the extent that he's doing damage to the democracy's ability to uh, correct itself, um, doing damage to trust in democracy, uh, he becomes sort of a novel and um, hard to, you know, figure out in the long run
0: figure in in ways that his predecessors uh, never were. If indeed Trump is a a George Wallace style figure, obviously, deeply divisive on on the race front, don't you think that? Biden should be choosing an African American vice president, a Stacey Abrams, perhaps, uh, given the way in which Trump has deployed uh, racial divisions and, and racist history to govern.
1: I think there's a real, a very strong case for choosing an African American vice presidential candidate. Um, I think this would go towards, you know, uh, representation. Um, You know, coalition management, you might might want to describe it. Um, And it would be a powerful thematic contrast. Although I I think it it shouldn't be underestimated the extent to which Biden being the former vice president to the first black president also offers a kind of thematic contrast. Uh, But I I think, uh, you know, as as I sort of suggested, Earlier I, I do take a very old fashioned view of why you should like who you should pick for vice president, and I very much believe that the overriding question should be can this person do the job at a moment's notice? Um, Biden will be if he wins, he'll be nearly eighty in twenty twenty four. So there's a good chance that, you know, whoever he picks, should he win, will be will be the next president for, you know, some time. Um, and so that that's what I have at the front of my mind, like who can help govern and who can help do it effectively and quickly. Um, there are many people beyond Warren who can do that, but I think Warren might be the, the best available choice.
0: Uh, Jamil, like everybody else, you're stuck inside during the pandemic with your dog and your, your two-year-old child. Uh, what are you reading at the moment? What books can give people a, a, some perspective on our current predicament, Help them understand where we are and where we want to get to.
1: So, with regards to you know the New Deal and Hoover and FDR, I am reading um, William Lechtenberg's Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal, which is from the 1970s. It's a bit of an older history of the period, but still a very um, strong one volume uh, one volume study, and I would hel- highly recommend it. I'm also reading um, or rereading uh, the 18th premiere of Louis Napoleon uh, Bonaparte, which is uh, by Karl Marx. I think to the extent that people have any knowledge of Marx, it's they think of him as a social theorist or an e- economist. Um, but he also was, to pay the bills, um, a journalist and a political commentator, and I think a very good one. And this book is his um, analysis, recounting of the French coup of 1851, which ends up putting um, uh, Louis Bonaparte uh, at the head of the French government as sort of Emperor Napoleon III. And this may seem like a strange thing to be reading in the current moment, but I think it's relevant both because um, uh, Louis Bonaparte is very Trump-like as far as historical figures go, um, uh, sort of buffoonish and ignorant and underestimated and had the support of kind of a, um, a, a social class of small property owners and shop owners and and uh, you know, wealthy interest and ends up leveraging that to um, topple uh, French democracy. Um, but also because I think it's, the book is just a great example of Marx's method of social criticism and analysis, of looking at things from the perspective of groups in society, um, thinking of things in terms of, you know, relationships between classes, um, and uh, rooting, rooting what happens in a society, not in terms of the big personalities, but in terms of the uh, competing groups of power and in the productive relations of the society. Um, And for me, you know, doing political analysis um, and doing it at a time when individual focused analysis, I think is is very easy to do and very
0: prevalent, um, reading that kind of big picture work, I find very useful. Marx, of course, begins that wonderful essay by uh, borrowing from Hegel saying that history repeats itself first as a tragedy and then as farce. Um, are we in the tragic or the farcical? <laughs> uh, you know, maybe things are happening on a cycle um,
1: and we are in sort of the, the, the tragic farce part of it. Uh, there's much tragic about the period, but the fact that... Um, uh, in my opinion, the fact that the singular figure at the top of this is Donald Trump is is farcical.
0: You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week and thanks so much for listening.